Next on Lectures in History, Trident College Professor Edward White teaches a class on lessons learned from the Vietnam War and how films and documentaries have portrayed the conflict. His class is about an hour. Today is the last class in our eight-part course called Vietnam War, the History, the Movies, and the Music. Normally, I begin with a brief review of the previous class. For today, let's take a quick summary of the course as a whole, and then we will focus on the lessons learned, the topic of today. Vietnam was part of a decision-making process of six presidents, from Franklin Roosevelt in 1945 to Gerald Ford in 1975. In the early sessions, we reviewed the historic dislike of the Vietnamese people for the Chinese, and as it turned out, the Vietnamese disliked any foreign power, whether it was the Mongols, the French, or the Japanese. We learned that Franklin D. Roosevelt was convinced that Vietnam, or Indochina, as it was called at the time, should be a trusteeship until a government could be formed. As a new president, Harry Truman was pressured from conditions in Europe so as to let France recolonize Indochina. France would not last and pulled out of Indochina after their defeat by the Viet Minh. The overall context of our involvement in Vietnam was the Cold War. The U.S. needed to fight back any Soviet incursion throughout the world. Truman was funding any anti-communist government. We also need to recall <clears throat> that in the 50s, it was a time that the Catholic Church was very anti-communist. And later, Senator McCarthy was finding communists in the State Department. Or so he said. Eisenhower then started talking about the domino effect. That is, <clears throat> if one country in Southeast Asia falls, they all tumble. He elaborated this idea in a press conference. Kennedy also repeated this theory of the domino effect, but he did not believe it. Dwight Eisenhower continued to support South Vietnam after the Geneva Accords. He agreed to continue putting a small amount of advisors into Vietnam. John Kennedy continued to increase the number of advisors, and he increased military aid to South Vietnam. We learned in a prior class that Kennedy would not uh, have had the United States remain in Vietnam. And in fact, he had specific plans for a withdrawal of the advisors. After John Kennedy's assassination, Lyndon Johnson rescinded the JFK order of withdrawal. <coughs> As in the case of Kennedy, Johnson was concerned about the upcoming election to guide his options in Vietnam. <coughs> Even after winning the election of 1964, LBJ was not clear about what to do with what he called the little shit country in Asia. The tapes and the documents of the time indicate he knew he could not win in Vietnam. He nonetheless chose war. When Nixon was elected in 1968, <clears throat> he ordered the strong-arm technique of massive bombing to bring the North Vietnamese to the peace table. From the statistics we reviewed in class, we learned that the bombing became unconscionable, particularly when Nixon admitted in what was dubbed the Zilch Memo that bombing had no effect in the conduct of the war. Nonetheless, Nixon continued the bombing in order to have an effect on the upcoming election <coughs> of 1972. As, as has been our practice throughout this course, we have used music and film as examples of the culture of those who served in Vietnam and the United States. It is a reflection of the social history during wartime.
So let's listen to some music quietly because there are other classes going on and right next door uh, they are giving tests. For today's class, we're going to cut short our normal playing of the song in the movie. From our last uh, musical example, let us turn to uh, Marvin Gaye and his popular song, What's Going On. The song was released in May of 1971. The song was originally written by Obie Benson, but revised by Gaye. Benson had witnessed anti-war activists being beaten by the police and posed the key question, what's going on? This idea was picked up by Gay in a concept album which was further developed from letters that Gay received from his brother who was serving in Vietnam. At the time, Marvin Gay was experiencing domestic troubles by going through a divorce and added to that, Gay's lead singer was dying. <coughs> What's Going On was later voted as one of the best albums of the 20th century. The song received numerous awards. The Library of Congress designated it as one of the best 50 best recordings. The lyrics reflect a combination of anti-war sentiment and racial injustice. And now for our last movie, Good Morning Vietnam. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Good! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva Da Nang. Da Nang me, Da Nang me. Why don't they get a rope and hang me? Hey, is it a little too early for being that loud? Hey, too late. It's 0600. What's the O stand for? Oh, my God, it's early. Speaking of early, how about that Cro-Magnon, Marty Drywitz? Thank you, Marty, for silky smooth sound. Make me sound like Peggy Lee. This film, Good Morning Vietnam, is perhaps the lightest theme of the movies we've seen during this course. The film was released in January 1988 with a budget of $13 million and box office receipts of $124 million. The plot is about a DJ, Adrian Quanauer, landing in Vietnam from the island of Crete to serve in the armed forces radio. This is the fact. The rest of the film is pure Hollywood. Quanauer died in July of this year and was a, really a conservative guy. In the movie, Robin Williams depicts Cronauer as an irreverent, funny, unsoldier-like uh, character. Good Morning Vietnam portrays a guy who meets a Vietnamese girl who happens to be the sister of a local Viet Cong soldier. The Viet Cong brother pulls the DJ out of a VC bomb plot in a bar. In the Hollywood version, Cornauer is portrayed as wildly popular because of the antics he uses when he plays records. Robin Williams improvised all of the scenes as the DJ. The first sergeant of the command is jealous of Cornauer's antics and sends him into the field knowing or hoping he might get killed. The Viet Cong brother 
saves him yet again. The late Robin Williams won a Golden Globe Award as Best Actor. He was nominated for an Academy Award. The film is number 100 on the 100 funniest films of American films. And now, let's turn to the lessons learned from Vietnam. To do this, we will look at six perspectives. Political, military, veterans, peace activists, scholars, and uh, the commercial media. Beginning with the political lessons, we learned in prior classes what LBJ thought of the Vietnam War. He continued with the overall idea of fighting communism. One aide called Johnson 18 people in one man. He was endlessly complicated and a lot of other things. When he became president, he really did not know what to do. And early on, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, also had no idea what to do with Vietnam. But together they plunged forward. Frankly, LBJ was looking toward the election of 1964. With that one, and by a landslide, one legitimately, and not like the 1948 election, where he gained the name Landslide Linden for a last-minute dubious counting. And I think we went into class uh, how that worked. Johnson could have withdrawn from Vietnam. After all, Kennedy had set in motion plans to withdraw advisors in 1963 and later. He had planned to withdraw all advisors by the end of 1965. As a matter of fact, Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, strongly suggested withdrawing after he won the landslide. The people had elected someone who said in the campaign, that he will not send American boys to do the fighting of Asian boys. LBJ disagreed with Humphrey and instead went with the Hawks in the cabinet, particularly Secretary of, Def uh, Secretary of State Dean Rusk. Despite all the advice uh, of those around him, Johnson was the president and the final decision was his to make. Johnson chose war. Ironically, he died on January 22, 1973. The Paris Peace Accords were signed five days later on January 27, 1973. Saigon and the South Vietnamese government fell on April 30, 1975. Sadly, what lessons could Johnson have learned that would make a difference to the next president? When Winston Churchill said, behind every extraordinary man is an unhappy childhood, Nixon comes to mind. Richard Nixon was far more explicit on the lessons of Vietnam. Since President Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, it gave the 37th president more time to ponder his administration, particularly the Vietnam War. In his book on the subject, entitled No More Vietnams, Nixon simply stated the United States had won the war, but we lost the peace. Nixon claimed the media distorted the truth and that the anti-war movement was misguided. And then there was Congress. Nixon went on to write that the United States needs to side with authoritarian governments who do not protect human rights so as to keep from power the totalitarian regimes that deny all human rights. He and Henry Kissinger kept up this hair-splitting throughout their time together. Henry Kissinger was someone who wormed his way into Washington power circles from Harvard. Wormed is a Washington employment term, indicating how business is done in D.C. During World War II, he was a sergeant in the Intelligence Corps. 
interrogating Germans. Actually, Kissinger played both sides. The Democratic side with Averill Harriman, and then the Republican side, finally, with Nixon. In Robert Dalek's book, Nixon and Kissinger, the subtitle is Partners in Power. Very apt. One played off the other, but Nixon was the decider in the relationship. I attended the Vietnam War Summit at the LBJ Library in April of 2016. One of the sessions was an interview with Kissinger by Mark Updegrove, then the executive director of the library. <coughs> Updegrove asked very direct questions, and one of them was, what is the biggest lesson of the Vietnam War? As is Kissinger's way, he weaved many lessons. The one that I thought telling related to moderating domestic debate. In, in effect, he was saying we should not be extreme, we should have moderate debate. Kissinger said, if you call leaders immoral, you will teach Americans that the government is run by criminals. I will not even start to analyze that statement in the context of the Vietnam War or today. For me, the quintessential Kissinger quote is the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little longer. <laughs> that says it all about the Nixon administration. Later presidents referred to the Vietnam, but with explicit lessons learned to apply, but not with, without explicit lessons learned to apply to their administration and the wars they got into. Ronald Reagan did call the war a noble cause. He said this in front of the Veterans of Foreign Wars Convention, a very safe place to say that. H.W. Bush said that with the win in the Gulf War, we had finally kicked the Vietnam syndrome. Uh, this particular uh, picture uh, is probably during uh, Reagan's time. It's interesting to see in the photograph that um, Nixon is here because by this time, obviously, he had resigned and in disgrace but brought back. Or maybe it was maybe Ronald Reagan um, telling one of his uh, notorious uh, jokes. And now to the military. Here we have uh, defense... Uh, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Robert McNamara. In the middle is Colin Powell. And at the end, David uh, Petraeus. Robert McNamara served as uh, Secretary of Defense under John Kennedy from 1961 until November of 1963 and continued with Ly Lyndon Johnson until February of 1968. After that service, McNamara served as President of the World Bank for 13 years. As we have covered before in this class, McNamara instigated the Pentagon Papers in order to ascertain the origins of the Vietnam War, as he wanted the papers to serve as a historical study and to be used by future leaders. After leaving the Johnson administration, McNamara remained silent about the war. In 1995, he came out with a book entitled In Retrospect. One chapter in the book is called The Lessons of Vietnam. In the chapter, McNamara states that the United States should have withdrawn from Vietnam in late 1963 or late 1964. He may have been referring to the proposed Kennedy withdrawal that we previously discussed. McNamara goes on to state, 11 major causes for our disaster in Vietnam, and he cites five goals that nations should aim toward before going to war. In the book, he also goes into why we should intervene in other nations. In essence, McNamara states the military and civilians did not play well together. He concludes all of his lessons and goals with the final analysis, that is, 
the Vietnamese had to win the war themselves. McNamara was also featured in a, a documentary called The Fog of War, produced in 2003. In this film, he offers 10 more lessons with an additional commentary on 11 other lessons. Perhaps in all of these lessons, the one that stands out the strongest is his lesson number nine in the first 10 lessons, not the following 11 lessons. Are you getting the message that McNamara has a lot of explaining to do? In any event, his ninth lesson goes as follows. In order to do good, you may have to engage in evil. Hmm, where have I heard this before? Colin Powell graduated from City College of New York as a second lieutenant from the Reserve Officer Training Corps, better known as ROTC. He served in Vietnam as an advisor from 1962 to 63 and later from 1968 to 1969 as a major in the Americal Division. After returning from Vietnam, Colin Powell earned an MBA from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He rose in the Army ranks to be the first four-star African-American as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as the youngest, 52, and the first ROTC graduate. Powell served in the Nixon, Carter, Reagan, H.W. Bush, and Clinton White House. Powell served as Secretary of State during the George W. Bush presidency. This distinguished professional says, said the lesson of Vietnam was to make sure the United States knows what we are getting into before our country goes to war. He went on to say, don't fight a war with another country that has greater investment in it and a greater cause than ours. This advice is known as the Powell Doctrine. Powell has said that after the United States invests a military force in a war, both political and diplomatic efforts are also to be considered. Colin Powell has said the objective of war needs a political base Finally, he said that once there is a sound military objective, there has to be decisive force to support it. Our last military person, David Petraeus, was a major in the Army when he received his Ph.D. from Princeton University. His thesis was entitled, The Lessons of History and the Lessons of Vietnam. Petraeus worked his way up the Army ladder to become a four-star general and director of the CIA. He said that senior generals have drawn three lessons from the Vietnam War. One, there are finite limits of American public support from U.S. involvement in a protracted conflict. Two, that civilian officials are responsive to influences other than objective conditions on the battlefield. And finally, the military recognize there are limits of military power when attempting to solve certain types of problems in world affairs. But let's hear from the other side. As we saw in prior classes, various veterans groups started up during the Vietnam War. One group is Vietnam Veterans of America. As we had learned, the organization gained financial backing from Bruce Springsteen. In part, uh, because of his financial support, it was due to the 30 million copies of his song, Born in the USA, where the lyrics detailed the military-industrial complex and inadequate help from the Veterans Administration of returning veterans. And as we had mentioned in prior class, uh, it was odd that the conservatives and the right wing supported born in the USA and had it in many of their elections. 
Moving right along. Veterans for Peace was started in 1985. It was initially a group that included World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Gulf War veterans, and then added to its roles as the U.S. entered other wars. Veterans for Peace has an ongoing project called the Vietnam Full Disclosure Project. Various authors contribute to the ongoing discussion of topics relating to the Vietnam experience. In the report, Full Disclosure, Truth About America's War in Vietnam, W.D. Erhardt, a Ph.D. teaching at Haverford School in Philadelphia, summarizes one major viewpoint by saying, the one lesson that no one in power in Washington seems to have learned is that no amount of military might can achieve goals that are incompatible with the beliefs, desires, and cultures of those at the other end of the rifle barrels and the hellfire missiles, and are thus unrealistic and unachievable. Earhart continues to say, if Vietnam did not drive home that lesson, certainly subsequent U.S. forays into Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan, Libya, and now Syria should have made that lesson lesson clear. Vietnam Veterans Against the War, or VVAW, started in 1967 in New York City. The organization uh, grew as Vietnam veterans returned from the war. The organization sponsored the Winter Soldier Conference in Detroit, Michigan, to talk about the various atrocities that happened in Vietnam. One of the high points of the VVAW was in April 1971, when John Kerry testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when he posed the question, how do you ask someone to be the last man to die in Vietnam? The Vietnam Veterans Against the War message was, among other ideas, that the war was a mistake that the, and the military-industrial complex ruled the conduct of the war. In May of this year, I attended a two-day conference at the University of Notre Dame sponsored by the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. It was the first time the anti-war movement got together in an academic setting to discuss the impact of the anti-war movement within the military during the Vietnam War. It also covered the Iraq War as well. For me, I was not aware of the GI Press, a newspaper, circulated on military bases, the coffee houses off base fostering discussions on the Vietnam War, and dissent by the POWs. I also met Susan Schnall, who was an active duty Navy nurse who was court-martialed for her war resistance work. Who knew? Who knew? And finally, perhaps, the Mansfield Amendment can be put into the column of anti-war and peace activists. Probably this is my choice. On June 22, 1971, the amendment, which called for the mandatory withdrawal of U.S. forces from Indochina nine months after the Senate bill was passed, and an end to all military operations after the release of all American POWs. The vote on the amendment was 57 to 42. And now, let's spend time with those who spend all their time on this particular topic. Tim Snyder, a historian at Yale, has said, people think historians are off reading dusty books. After you read all the dusty books, you see certain patterns, what fits together and what doesn't. A historian will never look at a problem and say, this is entirely new. A historian will try to find familiar aspect of a problem. So let us bring in three diplomatic historians to give their assessment of the problems of Vietnam. 
Our first uh, on your uh, left is Frederick Longval, a Cornell historian and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Choosing War and the Embers of War. Both books are on the Vietnam War. Longval has said that the United States administration, which includes the military establishment, made two mistakes in Vietnam, hubris and ignorance. With hubris, leaders were telling themselves the U.S. had not lost a war before Vietnam. The North Vietnamese were wearing pajamas, and we were the mighty. He wrote that our ignorance spoke volumes of not understanding the history of Vietnam and and the consequent mistakes for not knowing this history. In the end, Longval writes, there was a permissive content to the Vietnam War on the part of Congress, the press, and the American public. The Senate was skeptical. But members did not act on that skepticism, nor did Congress want to challenge the administration. The press stopped questioning the war once the troops were committed. Acceptance of the war became a rally around the flag. The American public was largely apathetic. They were too busy in their daily lives. The war was far away in a jungle, and was better to trust the leaders. And I emphasize that in terms of trusting the leaders. The key lesson of the Vietnam War, Longval says, is to educate ourselves as citizens and to demand of our leaders that the military option should be a weapon of last resort. The middle scholar is Marilyn Young, The late Marilyn Young, professor of New York University, has written numerous books, including one entitled The Vietnam Wars, 1945 to 1990. Dr. Young has said what leaders should have learned from Vietnam is that advanced technology and military force cannot solve political problems that arose during during and before the old colonial era when Europe ruled the world. She posed the question, if the concept of credibility had entered the discussion, would the the U.S. be a superpower? And if they had not defended the South Vietnamese against communism? In her book, Dr. Young quotes one of McNamara's, Robert McNamara's assistants, John McNaughton, perhaps said it best when he described why the U.S. was in Vietnam. He said 70% to avoid a humiliating defeat, 20% to keep the South Vietnamese territory out of Chinese hands, and 10% to permit the people of South Vietnam to enjoy a better, freer way of life kind of different from the messages that we received uh, during that period of time, huh? In another book, Marilyn Young also describes how little most Americans in and out of the corridors of power really knew about Vietnam itself during the war. There was also little scholarly attention given the Vietnamese history. The third scholar... Uh, Dr. Kristen Appy. He teaches at the University of Massachusetts. He's the author of a number of books on the Vietnam War. The most recent book, American Reckoning, develops the idea that the Vietnam War shattered the tenant of American national identity, meaning the broad faith that the United States is a unique force for good in the world, that the U.S. is superior not only in its military and economic power, but in the quality of its government and institutions. He further writes 
that the character and morality of its people and its way of life, a common term for this belief is American exceptionalism. Appy says that the hawkish Americans saw the Vietnam War as lamentable decline in the national will. Defeat was attributed not to the weakness of the American cause, but to the weakness of American character on the political and cultural left. They feared that the social movements of the 1960s had engendered a permanent revulsion to the use of military force. It was as if the anti-war sentiment had infected the country's spine and the heart with a debilitating disease. In 1980, the Hawks found a diagnostic label for this malady, the Vietnam Syndrome. How would the average citizen learn about the history of the Vietnam War? This brings us to the commercial section. In 1998, CNN produced a 24-episode series called The Cold War. One episode is called Vietnam, 1954 to 1968. In this episode, there is an interview with Clark Clifford, who succeeded Robert McNamara as Secretary of Defense during the Johnson administration. Clifford was a supporter of Lyndon Johnson and of the war until he interviewed the generals in the Defense Department. The interview creates great drama. The courtly lawyer asking questions. When will the war end? The generals don't know. How many more men will we lose? They don't know. What is our plan to win the war? They didn't have one. Other than staying with the current plan and hoping the enemy would finally give up. After those interviews with the generals, Clifford turned against the war. He advised Johnson that his only choice was to negotiate. A month after his advice was offered, Johnson told the nation that he would not seek another term as president in the 1968 election. In 2012, Oliver Stone, this is the fellow in the middle, um, who served in Vietnam, by the way. In 2012, Oliver Stone made a film called The Untold History of the United States. He produced three Vietnam uh, films as well. Uh, He also produced a book by the same uh, title. In the uh, DVD just cited, the section on the Vietnam War covers more of the anti-war movement and opinions than the other series that we've spoken about. In the film, Noam Chomsky of Boston University states that the war is called a defeat because the military did not achieve turning Vietnam into the Philippines. Most recently, in December of 2017, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick produced an 18-hour PBS documentary, The Vietnam War. Supposedly, the documentary reached 34 million viewers. This documentary had a $30 million budget. The series was passed over in the nominations for exceptional merit in documentary filmmaking, but Burns and Novak won the Primetime Emmy Award for directing for nonfiction programming and Jeffrey Ward for writing the script and the book. The award was for episode eight, called uh, March 1973 and onward. 
James Russell, who teaches political science at Portland State University, observes that the series' main message is that the troops fought valiantly in a mistaken and losing war. He notes there was an absence of academic experts. Academics hate that. Weighing in on the meaning of the war. Russell notes that the anti-war movement was suspect in their motives. They were being mildly unpatriotic and anti-soldier. The Burns-Novak series presents the Vietnam War as well-intentioned mistake by American policymakers. Or as Ken Burns said, it was begun in good faith by good men. When the average citizen views the commercial approach to the war through the various commercial productions, something is missing and incomplete, and in some ways, bias. Before we go on uh, to the next, and actually the last section, um, are there any lingering questions from uh, what we've talked about so far? Mary Rose. Can you repeat your last question? The last question. The last line that you just said. Um, when the average citizen views the... Com- oh, yeah, okay. Uh, when the average citizen views the commercial approach to the war through the various commercial productions, something's missing and incomplete and in some ways biased. Say again? What's missing? Well, <laughs> the academics. <laughs> What's missing is, in, in my opinion, is an analysis of the war. Um, if you've seen the Ken Burns uh, film, he uh, has one veteran after the other describe what happened, the circumstances, etc. And at best, I think... Um, fellow by the name of Negroponte is the only quote-unquote closest to uh, expert as such um, in the series. Uh, and then I think there's also one by Leslie Gelb. But it isn't, it isn't as if uh, it's a story. And Ken Burns really goes into that in a big way. Ken Burns says, I'm not making history. I'm telling a story. And he does tell a story. Now, do you agree with the story? Or is a story fiction, nonfiction, or nice to hear from those who went to war? Or is it uh, in terms of what should a citizen get out of this thing called the Vietnam War? What are the, what are the lessons? Um, there are people back and forth um, carping about the way certain things were handled. But there isn't a cohesive... Um, analysis of what happened. And uh, again, he's in the business of uh, uh, being a commercial filmmaker, and maybe he doesn't want to get uh, too technical, uh, nor very um, uh, controversial, so as maybe his next film wouldn't be funded. That's probably a cynical view, but um, he, um, he has great uh, history in terms of Lewis and Clark Trail and jazz, uh, FDR, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, and maybe it's because the Vietnam War is very close to me that um, he just doesn't have those who maybe uh, could add a little analysis onto uh, what were the lessons. Right. He leaves the analysis to the viewers. Yes. And um, I don't know how many have seen the Vietnam War, the whole series. And whether or not you thought, um, as a citizen, you said, oh, well, that explains the whole war. Thank you, Ken Burns and Lynn Novak. I suspect not, but uh, it is a war, and it's something that ought to be analyzed. Why do we get into it? And et cetera. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it makes war sound stupid. And um, 
evil. Mm -hmm. It makes the makers of war sound stupid or mm -hmm. self-serving. That's just one, one viewer's analysis. Yeah. And as we um, had discussed in class over the last seven classes, um, there were things that you know, could have been done differently. We brought out the one business that JFK would um, have gotten out of the war, had specific plans. And remember, I brought in the uh, documents from the National Archives specifically saying that. Um, they asked, by the way, uh, Henry Kissinger at the, uh, the summit um, about that um, uh, question. Did, do you think JFK had any plans to get, oh, no, no, not at all, no, 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 in his usual uh, Austrian uh, thick accent. But um, there, there's just, um, there's more that could be done because we're giving our, our troops up to uh, harm's way, It's my opinion. Uh, Stephen. Would you like to summarize what you see as the lessons of Vietnam? No. Uh, not right now, oddly enough. That is the next uh, section, in part, uh, that you can um, uh, earn, see from that, that what, uh, what lessons I have learned. And in part, as my wife says, the, a lot of the um, biases comes out um, in terms of describing various positions. But, yes, Manny. And you being the scholar in the room who experienced Vietnam War, followed it passionately for all these years since, and studied for this topic for our benefit, of course. The point comes to mind, the bias, that portion. Do you think that somehow, by mistake, we slid into the same bias that the Western colonials had about the other people who should be civilized and saved and Christianized? Did we slide after Second World War into that position in Korea and then again in Vietnam? And therefore, inexorably, they had to fail and leave in embarrassment, same as previous colonial power. Mm -hmm. Do you get that bias got us into it and we had to come out in embarrassment? Not a, a bias um, as much, and remember we had, um, had Dr. Kuhn come in and talk about the Southern Baptists, and they were supporters uh, of the war. God is on our side, that kind of thing. Um, I believe it, it, for the Vietnam War, even today, it comes down to, uh, and I had asked veterans this all the time, do you think... Um, we should have gone in, and um, do you think it was the right war to, to have fought? And it split right down the middle. So this is a topic that's going to go on, um, maybe even to rival the books on the Civil War. Uh, it has grown that large. Um, I don't think we... Uh, the Noam Chomsky quote about um, uh, we wanted to make it like the Philippines... Um, is an interesting quote, but I think there's more, um, a lot more evidence into uh, we really didn't know what to do. And then again, those in power were always facing the next election. That seems to be part of our problem as um, in terms of our government, that we get just the next person in. And the next person could decide, well, I won't go into it, but the next person could decide totally different from what our normal policy would be all along. I don't think we've been a colonial power in the sense of uh, Britain, uh, although we do have 800 bases throughout the world. Um, we have more of an attempt to keep up with the superpower idea without occupying land. So I wouldn't say it was colonial. It's kind of an odd... Um, an expensive way of um, conducting being a superpower, but um, as, as President Eisenhower said, the military-industrial complex just keeps going, and it, it is what it is. Thank you. So...
Yes, Vizanti. Um All these, uh, what to learn from Vietnam War, you have um, emphasized political, military, VFP, and then scholars' assessment and commercial media. Um, in any war, there is, number one, that for a common citizen, it's the loss of lives that I, we see. Um, also, the financial gain and loss, that is such a major thing. And usually the financial gain is only in certain companies and some people. Yes. Which is such a big factor in yes. the war. So if you would like to... Um, it, say anything about this? Yes, um, we seem to have done very well. Although other European countries as well um, have, have been good in terms of uh, um, arms development, uh, Israel being one today, uh, it's not the normal European, France, Germany, uh, Britain who uh, develop the arms sales, besides the United States, the United States being the, the highest arms sale um, dealer in the world. Um, but it is, um, I think, our uniqueness, uh, and perhaps going back to our colonial times when uh, George Washington said not to get involved in entangled alliances, we should trade with everybody. And I think... The subsequent generations down the, um, the line have picked up and ran with that, but particularly in terms of arms development and particularly in terms of arms sale uh, throughout the world. So it's not, as uh, Manny had um, uh, said about a colonial staying in one area as Great Britain, but it is the, almost the colonialism of arms sale. Um, that we really specialize um, in building the latest and greatest, best uh, weapon to blow somebody up, and we'll sell to anybody. And we are getting into any number of embarrassing circumstances uh, currently. Thank you. Okay, Mary Rose, one last question. Is, is there any analysis going on between the lessons learned of Vietnam and what's going on in Afghanistan? The yes, uh, there is. Uh, I have not gone into it um, as much as the Vietnam War, uh, but there is similar lessons in terms of um, the nation-building concept. Um, we had wanted to save the South Vietnamese from communism to build up their nation to be anti-communist, and we wanted to build up Afghanistan uh, similarly against whatever um, jihadist or um, group that we didn't like at the time. So in a sense, it's that. Um, and in a sense, too, the insurgents we created as a result of all the bombing in um, South Vietnam is very similar to all the bombing that goes on in Afghanistan. We are creating, um, in Iraq and Syria, and I mean, on and on, um, more insurgents as we blow more people up. Uh, smart bombs really are not smart. Uh, but we're working on that, and the military-industrial complex, I'm sure, will come out with a new and better weapon very soon. <clears throat> okay. Let's um, get into the... Uh, uh, legacies of war. The, what can be said about these legacies of the Vietnam War, or any war, other than death and destruction? Here are several legacies that stand out to me as someone who served in Vietnam and studied the history of the war. The Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. currently has 58,318 names. The memorial is one of the most oft-visited sites in our nation's capital. Then there's a leg legacy of Agent Orange. President John Kennedy first approved the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam. And there are many colors to the toxins. Uh, there's a blue, there's a uh, purple, there's a white. But the color orange 
was used to defoliate uh, the jungle. Today, the Vietnamese continue to suffer the effects of uh, Agent Orange. As physicians and medical researchers are finding out, the toxins last over many generations. It's not just those who had inhaled it or got into their skin, but it's their children and they're finding their grandchildren. One recent piece of legislation proposes disability coverage to sailors who served on ships off the shore of Vietnam. While it took years for the Veterans Administration to admit the impact of toxins on soldiers who had put boots on the ground in Vietnam, they now realize that the Navy also suffered the effects of Agent Orange. The toxin flowed into the soil in Vietnam and into the rivers in Vietnam and then out to sea. The Navy used the water with minimal filtering for cooking and washing on the ships. Now the VA has recognized Asian Orange naval personnel, or as they are called, the Blue Water Veterans. The environmental degradation of Vietnam is extensive. This is one of the lasting legacies of the Vietnam War. Perhaps the domino theory, which formed the early reasons for committing troops to, the, to Vietnam, remains just that, a theory. Nonetheless, a defeat of the United States, a superpower, by insurgents encouraged others throughout the world. Pierre Asseline of San Diego State University makes a good case for the energy created in the non-aligned movements in the third world countries. He cites Che Guevara calling for more Vietnams. The Palestine, Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, drew lessons and strength when, American, when America's enemies won the Vietnam War. Dr. Asleen has said that overall, 14 revolutions ensued worldwide in seven years after the U.S. extrication from the Vietnam in 1973. So, in effect, the uh, domino theory is of no consequence for the mere, what was it, six countries it was going to uh, conquer. The creation of um, a sense of we can actually defeat a superpower occurred throughout the world, as Dr. Asleen has uh, detailed in his, in his books. The press had a free reign in Vietnam to go anywhere in the country. As a result, the journalist's firsthand experience told a very different story than the military press releases coming out of Saigon during the war. The military learned this lesson well. After Vietnam, journalists are now embedded into combat units to protect them, but also to protect the stories they write. The unpopular Army draft ended in January 27, 1973, and now the military consists of only those who want to be in the rank and file. The all-volunteer army goes anywhere they are ordered without dissent of the mission. On July 12, 1995, President William Clinton was the first president to recognize the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. In April 1997, Pete Peterson, a prisoner of war who served six years in the Hanoi prison, was the first United States ambassador to serve in the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. Peterson served as ambassador until 2001. On March 15, 2018, the U.S. aircraft carrier visited Vietnam for the first time since the end of the Vietnam War. And here in Illinois, the standard textbook for high school students is entitled The Americans, Illinois edition. It has a section on Vietnam War and contains a section on the legacies of Vietnam. The chapter cites the positions of the Hawks and the Doves and mentions the War Powers Act. The War Powers Act, passed in November of 1973, 
stipulated that a president must inform Congress within 48 hours of sending forces into a hostile area without a declaration of war. In addition, the troops may remain there no longer than 90 days unless Congress approves the president's actions or declares war. The book states that cynicism and suspicions of government began with the Vietnam War. In summary of this course, the history of Vietnam, movies and music, we should turn back in America's past to reflect on the lessons of history. Our second president, John Adams, said, Power always thinks it has a great soul and that it is doing God's service when it is violating all his laws. With that thought from American history, we conclude this course. Thank you for attending, and we'll see you next semester. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.